All right, we are back. We, we often, of course, go with uh, interviews in, in segment two, but we really thought Dennis Kucinich should be at the top of the program, so that's where we put him, which naturally means that what is normally at the top of the program will now be here in segment B. We have lots of material that we've accumulated for this program. In some instances, I would say boxes worth of material. But given the fact that we are not being produced on a weekly basis at the moment, I think we're going to grab uh, the materials that have accumulated since we last went on the air about a month ago and just run through some of that, although we've never wanted this program to be a uh, program that's exclusively dealing with current events. But then again, I don't think we ever became that, so to hell with it. Let me instead reach for my stack of The Week and New Scientist and see what we can pull out of that. And of course, one thing we always enjoy doing on this show is The Good the bad, and the ugly. So let's grab The Week magazine and go back in time and from there come forward. According to the week, it was a a good week about a month back for national service after a UK finance firm estimated that the nation's hospitality sector can recoup its pandemic losses if every citizen of legal drinking age performs the basic duty of every British adult. And by that, it turns out they meant consume 124 pints of beer this summer. outside the box thinking from the UK. It was, on the other hand, a bad week that week for outside the box creative defenses. With the news that Albert Watkins, who is a lawyer for the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley, said that most of those who stormed the Capitol on January 6th are, quote, short bus people, unquote, with, quote, brain damage, unquote, who, he added, were, quote, subject to four plus years of damn propaganda, the likes of which we've not seen since effing Hitler, end quote. You know, I have to admit here at Radio Parallax, we don't, we don't find a lot of fault with his particular uh, line of reasoning. And it was an ugly week that week in late May for lesser induced offenses, for lesser included offenses, after a Colorado man charged with murdering his wife was also charged with stealing her mail-in ballot and using it to vote for Donald Trump. Barry Lee Morphew allegedly told FBI agents, I figured all those other guys are cheating. A week later, it was judged a good week for social distancing after a salmonella outbreak in 43 states prompted this warning from the CDC. People should not kiss or snuggle backyard chickens, quote, even if they look healthy and clean, unquote. Well, it just goes to show you, even if they do look healthy and clean, for God's sakes, do not kiss or snuggle with them, at least for now. Was well, the other hand, a bad week that week for Anthony Bouchard. He is a Wyoming state senator challenging Representative Liz Cheney for her House seat. 
This came after he confirmed that he did impregnate a 14-year-old girl when he was 18. We, we do have to admire his attempt at an explanation, which was, quote, she was a little younger than me, so it's like the Romeo and Juliet story. I'd unravel every riddle for any individual in trouble or in pain. With the thoughts you'd be thinking you could be another Lincoln if you only had a brain. And it was an ugly week the week after that for, I don't know, what we're going to call this. Um, being woke? I'm not sure. But the story is that as part of its effort to combat systemic racism, Princeton University will no longer require students majoring in classics to study either Latin or Greek. Department officials said that dropping the requirement would promote, quote, inclusion, unquote. This prompted alumnus J. David Garman to liken the move to an engineering department abandoning mathematics and physics and moving right along in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. The week of June 11th showed that it was a good week for thin air after an unknown buyer paid $18,350 for Il Sono, I Am, in Italian, an invisible sculpture by Italian artist Salvatore Garau. The artist, age 67, described the sculpture, quote, as density of thoughts, unquote. He said, in quantum physics, even empty space is full of energy. We'd like it to be known right here and now that if anyone out there would care to send $18,000 to Radio Parallax, we will, in turn, send you a CD containing, well, let's just say density of thought. And although the CD may be, um, well, invisible in terms of making a transcript and inaudible, we too believe that even empty space is full of energy and, and, and has a reasonable price, we think, 18000 It was also evidently a bad week for self-deplatforming after Donald Trump, remember him, shut down his rambling weblog of rants, quote, from the desk of Donald Trump, because so few people were reading it. Yes, even for Trump supporters, reading it is, you know, something of an obstacle. And it was an ugly week for anti-racism after the Spanish Postal Service issued a series of equality stamps. They came in four different skin color shades, but they had to withdraw them after customers noticed that they were priced in ascending order of lightness. Yes, apparently the 1.6 euro white skin stamp was worth more than twice as much as the 0.7 euro black skin stamp. All right, we like these so much. Let's do one more set. Anyway, according to the week, it was a good week last week for recalculating after U.S. airlines said they were adding 5 to 10 pounds to the average weight of passengers and their baggage to avoid the safety risk of overloaded airplanes. But alas, it was a bad week for recidivism with the news that Canadian Member of Parliament William Amos, who, quote, accidentally, unquote, exposed himself to colleagues during a Zoom meeting in April, was again seen on camera, in this case, urinating into a coffee cup. For his part, Amos said that he would, quote, seek assistance, unquote. We, we assume by that he did not mean how to brew up a better cup of java. And lastly, it was an ugly week last week for free snacks. After the FDA warned that people with seafood allergies should not eat the crunchy cicadas currently covering the ground in 15 states. 
explained the agency, presumably by a spokesperson who does not have a degree in biology, that these insects share a family relation to shrimp and lobsters. We at Radio Parallax feel obliged to point out that cicadas are insects, whereas shrimps and lobsters are crustaceans. Anyway, this correspondent is feeling a bit left out at the fact that there's cicadas all over the East Coast, and I've never seen this, um, this explosion of insect life. I, um, I might want to do that this summer. I guess there's a few more weeks left in, in this, uh, this mating ritual. We did report on this program some years back when there was another brood that had erupted across the U.S. that um, the question was asked of, I believe it was a New York rabbi, whether it was kosher to eat cicadas. And unfortunately for those Jewish citizens contemplating this insect bounty as potential crunchy snacks, well, the rabbi ruled against them. While locusts are considered kosher per Jewish law, apparently the cicada did not make the cut. So there you have it. If you were contemplating a a snack of crunchy cicadas, you're going to have to instead substitute grasshoppers. Mr. Merlin just asked me whether uh, it was in fact um, prohibited for Jewish people to consume shrimp and lobsters, and the answer is yes, they are thusly prohibited. So although we are skeptical about the prohibition based on seafood allergies, we do remind our Jewish friends that no, the shrimp scampi and lobster thermidor are still out of bounds. All right, let's go to New Scientist magazines for some other food news. We've been very skeptical on this program of... um, the blessings of technologic life, shall we say. But sometimes the burlesques we have made uh, in, in this area are transcended by reality. And, well, here's the headline. AI uses body cam to assess calorie intake. According to the magazine, Benny Lowe at Imperial College of London and colleagues asked 13 people to wear cameras around their chests or on their glasses to capture images at mealtime. Any pictures that showed food got annotated by dietitians, say the magazine, and the meals were weighed. These images and data were then used to train an AI known as a neural network to identify food types and estimate volume and nutritional content. We have another suggestion. The use of the neural network known as your brain in conjunction with the visual apparatus known as your eyeballs to assess how much and what you eat and thereby gauge your caloric intake. It's just a suggestion. It's pretty low-tech, We think it'll work. In another dubious news about AI, we have this. According to a United Nations report, military drones may have autonomously attacked humans for the first time ever last year. The full details of the incident, which took place in Libya, haven't been released, and it's unclear if there were any casualties. The event suggests that international efforts to ban lethal autonomous weapons before they're used may already be too late. The drone in question is apparently a Cargo 2 quadcopter made by STM, a Turkish firm. It is equipped with an explosive charge and can be flown manually, but in autonomous mode, the drone uses cameras with artificial intelligence to find and identify targets. STM claims, we would say somewhat alarmingly, that the robot has sophisticated object and facial recognition capability. And apparently the firm did not respond to requests for comments by new scientists. The details of this apparent attack emerge in a report by the UN Security Council's panel of experts on Libya. They published it in March of this year. It detailed a civil war conflict in March 2020 between forces allied to Libya's government and those affiliated with Khalifa Haftar, who was commander of the Libyan National Army. 
The report says that Haftar forces were hunted down by Kargu 2 drones operating autonomously, which were, quote, highly effective, unquote. The lethal autonomous weapon system were programmed to attack targets without requiring data connectivity between operator and the munition, notes the report. In other words, the drones could seek and attack human targets without a human in the loop at all. Anybody find that scary? Because we do. And uh, boy, I'm looking at these, these new, new scientist articles and they're, they're all a bit gloomy, but here we go. I was hiking a few days ago up in the hills, not far from where I live, and was struck by something, the sound of crickets. Now, that familiar summer-associated sound used to be, I I think, kind of ubiquitous. If you were anywhere in the warmer months, you heard crickets. Or so it seemed to me, certainly later in summer, you know. But I I would ask you, dear listener, are you missing the crickets? We would encourage you to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com to see if it's, you know, just us. And in conjunction with that, I have this article from New Scientist titled Don't Kill, Repel, which starts off as follows. Insects are disappearing. The world has 25% fewer terrestrial insects now than in 1990. This includes those we rely on to pollinate our crops and clean our rivers. I think it's been a major news story in recent years that bees are having a very hard time. I can tell you my neighbor and I have lost eight colonies in the past few years. And yes, sometimes they start out like gangbusters. One hive that I had put out something like seven swarms in a few weeks, but alas, several months later, looked dead. Notes New Scientist, there are many causes for this insect decline, but insecticides are a major part of the problem. Those used today are longer lasting and up to 10,000 times more toxic than some that were banned in the 1970s. Adding to the problem is that these pesticides are now applied to crops prophylactically and used whether pests are present or not. Overall, the amount of pesticide applied to the land is decreasing, but this is a grossly misleading statistic. A recent paper found that between 2005 and 2015, there was a 40% reduction in the amount of pesticide applied to crops as measured by weight, but because modern insecticides are so much more toxic, the global toxicity of treated land to pollinated insects has more than doubled in the same period. Government regulatory agencies are well aware of the problem, and some parts of the world have moved to ban the use of certain insecticides outdoors in an attempt to help bees survive. But the pesticides used instead are just as toxic. And here, and the next paragraph just deeply saddens me. Notes the article. One often touted approach is to use pesticide-free pest control methods. These varied techniques are gathered under the name of Integrated Pest Management, IPM, and have been around for decades. They offer effective crop protection and include methods such as crop rotation and the use of natural predators. But their adoption has been incredibly slow because spraying pesticides is viewed as an easier option. As a result, IPM methods are unfortunately seldom used today. I can remember decades ago talking about this, and it seemed like such a no-brainer. And just to throw in a little aside, back in those days when I was a young college student, I would work every summer in uh, the Hunt Wesson cannery, which was located uh, on the out- what was then the outskirts of Davis. And while there, I got an, an education here in the ass-backwards way we think about pests and food. And, uh, oh, my roommate had a, a girlfriend at the time whose, uh, whose dad was a woodland 
tomato farmer. Made a very good living at it. I believe he had a contract with Hunts, along with probably some other canneries. I know that anyone that did was required by the cannery to spray their crop six times with deadly pesticide. Yes, they had to put poison on the crops six times, regardless, regardless of the amount of infestation they may have been experiencing. That they spray on our, our foods, these poisons. Oh, well, the sun just, uh, in the sun, they just, they go away. They're, they're not there anymore. And of course, we do wash them off. And, and I know what that means. You, you know, you, you sprinkle them with water. And since I'm pretty sure pretty much every pesticide out there is lip, more lipid-soluble than water-soluble, that probably doesn't work very well. I'm no expert on this, but let's just say I'm skeptical. Meanwhile, over in the lab, which was set up to monitor the state of the, pro- of the product that came out, the tomato sauce, the ketchup, etc., they would check under a microscope to see whether there were insect parts. And you'd be surprised, even a small amount of insect contamination might get, you know, whole batches of food tossed out. So let's circle back to, you know, cicadas and locusts. You can eat insects. If there was a worm on that tomato and it got chopped up and boiled, you know, it isn't going to hurt you at all. Hurt you. And Mr. Mill points out it, it is not good for the worm, and that, that's true. But you can eat insects. You can eat worms. And pardon me for yet another aside, but I love the story, although I've told it before. In the African nation of Botswana, which is just north of South Africa, a major food source for the native population are caterpillars. For whatever reason, they march across the landscape in a, in a vast army and are easy to gather up, cook, and consume. I knew about this when I paid a visit to Botswana many years ago. There were people on the side of the road reaching into a bag like, you know, one for potato chips and popping these things in their mouth. And so it was at one point in downtown Habarone, I took out a small coin and walked over to a little lady who was selling some of them and handed it to her. She then handed me three specimens. A very, well, he looked like a very proper British gentleman, you know, complete with waxed handlebar mustache right out of like, you know, Rudyard Kipling. Came up behind me, looked down and said, they're worms, they eat them. Which of course was exactly what I intended to do, but I looked at him and said, and how do they taste? I don't know, he replied. I don't eat worms. Well, I'm here to tell you, they don't taste all that bad. Kind of like French fries with, well, if you added in little, you know, crunchy heads. The point is, you can eat insects. God knows, you, you can eat them. They're better than harmless. They're nutritious. Whole populations in Africa live off them. So why do we take deadly toxins and spray them on our food to avoid insects? Particularly since this article by Theo Time Colin and Andrew B. Barron points out, the world's insects are in trouble, and we need to change how we use pesticides in order to help them recover. The point of this article is that instead of killing pests, they should move toward protecting crops, repelling the insects. They note that currently products are developed and marketed to, to kill insects immediately. This has become the goal of crop treatment, and the death of the insect is considered proof the treatment works. But the real goal of pesticides isn't to wipe out the insects, it's to protect the crops to secure food production. The authors of the article note that they've found that using just a fraction of the concentrations applied today stops insects feeding on crops. At these reduced concentrations, there'd be a lot less insecticide leaching into the environment, so less harm to beneficial insects. 
They also note that we don't need to kill all pests infecting a crop. We just need to reduce the population enough to ensure that it causes no important economic damage. Farmers know that a handful of insects don't cause problems. It's when they reproduce the trouble comes. The authors found that much less insecticide is needed to prevent the insects from reproducing than to kill them. They also discovered that crops are inadvertently treated too many times. Often, they're first treated with fungicides that also happen to be toxic to insects. Treating them again with an insecticide is like killing one bird with two stones. Anyway, enough said. This is nuts. We've got to stop this. But then I look back to those days in college when we took a look at all sorts of issues that faced the world and came up with obvious solutions. Things like, you know, we, we burn up too much gasoline. It's not good for the world to burn up all that gas and, you know, create CO2, although we weren't thinking so much about that back then. But one solution that was pretty obvious was build smaller cars that get better mileage. That was pretty plain 40 plus years ago. But what actually happened? Automakers decided they could make more money by getting everybody into an SUV. And that is the road we took instead. All right, here's another no-brainer about how we can do things better. Also from New Scientist. The UK has now banned peat-based compost sales to home gardeners. Or at least, I guess, they're about to. And no, yours truly was unaware of the fact that commercially available peat compost is usually made from peat dug out of lowland bogs that form in high rainfall areas in northern Europe and Canada. Compost, of course, makes a wonderful growing medium for new plants because of its ability to hold air, water, and retain nutrients. But (laughs) I didn't know they'd go to the peat bog and dig out the peat to make the compost, but they do. Article by Claire Wilson notes that peat bogs are a precious and finite resource. They take thousands of years to form out of partially decomposed moss residues. When we drain and rip up the bogs, we, we lose unique ecosystems and while we're at it, release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. The good news, of course, is that there are plenty of alternatives. In a previous column, the author pointed out how easy it is to make your own compost from garden waste and kitchen scraps, something this correspondent has been doing, oh, since college. It is incredibly easy to do, and when you're done, you get a very nice product out out of it that's good for the garden. So folks, if you've got enough space in your yard, please consider setting up a compost pile. It's really easy. I mean, really, here's how easy it is. Pile up your vegetable matter in a big lump and let it sit. Oh, you should turn it every so often, but you know, it it really isn't much harder than that. All right, lots of other issues we wanna talk about, whether COVID-19 came from a lab or not. Um, We're gonna do that, but not today. We may or may not talk about this, uh, this, this news that Washington is all a flutter about reports from the Air Force on UFOs. There seems to be mounting evidence that uh, things that pilots have made visual contact with were also picked up on radar and also photographed, which makes it seem like something real is out there. But that great leap of faith to say that if there's UFOs, what they represent are flying saucers from alien civilizations around other stars. Well, that's, 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 uh, that's just a bit of a leap. Quite an extraordinary claim. And of course, Carl Sagan once pointed out that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Or maybe he said extraordinary evidence. I don't remember which. Some people I know are pretty upset that the Republicans blocked a January 6th commission. 
We're not. Anyone who thinks that government blue ribbon commission investigations into uh, politically charged events yields good results has not been paying attention. The fact of the matter is we do not need a January 6th Warren report. There's been a government change over in Israel. We'll have to take a look at that in a future program. We're not sure whether that is a case of being out of the frying pan and into the fire. It might be. Here's a frightening stat. 28% of Republicans say they believe the QAnon theory that, quote, there's a storm coming soon that will sweep away the elites in power and restore the rightful leaders. By that, they mean evidently Donald J. Trump, who evidently has been telling people that he expects to be reinstated sometime in August. And I'm coup d'etat mentioned yet in conjunction with that uh, reestablishment of uh, a Trump presidency, but that's, that's what it would involve. And here's a story on human nature we'll probably close with. Uh, Evidently, a district in northern Thailand has found an effective way to promote COVID vaccination. They're giving those who get a shot a chance to win a free cow. The district will soon begin 24 weeks of weekly drawings in which vaccinated villagers are eligible to win a young cow worth about 10,000 baht, 319 U.S. After the program was announced, vaccination numbers went from hundreds to thousands in a couple of days. According to District Chief Boonle Tham Thuranurak, the villagers love cows. Cows can be sold for cash. And of course, we may be amused by that story, but right here in our own state of California, they've instituted a lottery where the lucky vaccinated person might go home with a million dollars. Yes, I suppose in the end, the public health will benefit from a program that gets numbskulls out there with that as their motivation to get a shot. Anyway, I guess we'll see how that pans out in both California and Thailand. And anyway... Whether your motives are cash, cow, or your own survival, please, get a shot. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Our thanks go to former mayor and congressman Dennis Kucinich, who may, you know, who knows, become the mayor of Cleveland yet again. His book, The Division of Light and Power, is a good one. We will try and bring you a show on a somewhat more regular basis than we've been doing lately. We'll try. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I also want to address some of the uh, correspondence we've received of late, but not today. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you soon.